Hey, Julie. Hey, Lisa. How are you? I am doing great. How are you? More importantly, I'm, which people want to hear about, how are you doing? Um, I'm doing as well as possible. I'm in week three post-surgery after ACL surgery. And this week highlights include, I am able to walk outside and that has been such a joy. The weather has been a bit anomalous this week where we've had some 60 degree days, the first week of January. And that has allowed me to walk outside in my brace around the block. Typically that takes me a walk around the block takes me about five minutes. This is taking me about 15 and I'm enjoying every minute walking very gingerly and carefully and paying attention to my stride. And why this is important to me is because it's just one step closer to freedom. As we've talked about in previous episodes, this is my right leg. I'm not able to drive and I'm not able to do much at all. So just knowing that I can go outside and walk around the block is huge mentally for me right now. And another highlight is that uh, I have full extension. And what that means is that I'm able to proceed to the next phase of recovery. As a result, a lot of folks have trouble getting full extension after this surgery. And what that means is when I sit down and I extend my legs, the back of my knee is able to touch, touch the surface. And for some folks, there's a big gap there still. And I don't have that anymore. And I'm so pleased because that's like one of the huge benchmarks. And as a result, I'm able to progress and work on some other things. So this week I've been working on standing on my leg fully extended for 20 seconds. And I'm able to do that. And I know that there's a lot of people out there that can't at this point. And so I'm focusing on the things I am able to do. And this isn't a race by any means, but these benchmarks allow me to progress. And then lastly, I started doing a little bit of upper body strength training this week. And that has brought me a lot of joy. Um, obviously I'm not going to do anything lower body. I'm going to stick to my PT regimen, but I'm able to do some bench presses, some tricep work, chest, biceps, back. And, um, my trainer, Lauren came over, which was so nice where I usually work with her at her place, but she stopped by yesterday and provided me with some great workouts. And I just felt really good about that. So all positive. I'm still not sleeping. Um, that's a negative. I just wake up every night at three in the morning in pain and I take an Advil and I go back to sleep eventually, but that is really unnerving for me because I really thought by this week. I wouldn't feel this anymore and I can't stand it. I hate not sleeping and I'm trying to just move past it and realize this too shall pass, but that is really getting on my nerves. And, um, it's just kind of wreaking havoc on my ability to fully function on all cylinders. I'm just not someone that can get away with not getting a lot of sleep. Um, but I'm fortunate in that I'm not going anywhere. And so I am trying to just, uh, sleep a little longer in the morning when I can and, and deal with that. So that's my progress. And once again, thank it's you. A lot of progress. It's a lot thank of progress. You. And, um, I've seen you and you are, um, you know, I know you're saying you can't do much, but you are doing so much in terms of your, um, physical therapy and staying on top of everything that you're supposed to be doing. And that's probably why you're hitting these benchmarks. I think, you know, in, in good order is that you're so diligent about doing your exercises, staying off your feet, doing, you know, not doing too much, 
um, listening to, to your wonderful PT, who, yet I think, you know, that's another testament to why you're making so much progress is you're in the hands of really good PT and PT practice. Um, so, you know, I think you are doing a lot, even though you're saying, you know, you, you're, you're very limited in what you can do, what you are able to do, you're doing and you're crushing it and, and in typical Julie fashion, getting a PR in, in, um, what you can do right now. So I think that's probably why you're, you're progressing the way you are. Thanks. And thank you so much also for uh, coming over. It means so much to me when people have been coming over over the past three weeks because I can't really go out and see people. So people have been coming here. And Lisa, thank you for spending time with me over the past few weeks. It's really meant so much to me. And it's just, it really brightens my day. So I love spending time with you and hanging out with you and and just catching up on on non-running things too together. It was really a joy. So thank you. You're welcome. It's fun. It's a, you know, it's a silver lining. It's an excuse to just hang out together and not, not be we're usually in constant motion and so much going on. And um, it kind of forced us both to just settle down and sit back and take some quiet time, which, which has been really nice, but we are back kind of into the groove of things now that when our break is over and um, January is here and we're excited that our Boston group program is starting um, next week. And we started with a um, kind of all, all, um, all runner kickoff call last night, um, which was really great. We always love having that opportunity to see all of our runners, even though it's on Zoom, but it was really fun to see everybody's faces pop up. And we were fortunate to welcome Kelly Redman, who does our strength routines for our runners, uh, talk about the importance of strength, why it is so integral to a to a running program and um, how to fit it in, how to spread it out, how to cycle the workouts. Um, so it was, I think it was really helpful for our runners to get to see her face-to-face over Zoom and ask questions, kind of hear the, the method behind uh, the approach that we take and that Kelly takes. So that was really nice. So um, we are excited to kick off um, not only um, the, the 2023 spring training season, but our, our Boston training um, for our runners that are doing Boston. And so um, today we want to talk about, um, you know, Boston training and what what we have experienced through our now. So we have, what are we up to like 31 uh, consecutive, 31 combined Boston finishes. We've got a lot of experience training for Boston, running the Boston course. Um, we've seen what works, we've seen what doesn't work. So we're going to talk today about um, some myths that people go into Boston training with and and what we've seen kind of work better than than these these myths of tr- that for success at Boston. Um, but what we want to talk about too real quickly, and we're going to do another podcast episode on this. Uh, we get a lot of runners who call us who say, hey, I, I want to qualify for Boston. And, um, you know, that, that, that process of qualifying for Boston, what does that look like? And, and how, how is that possible? You know, if, you, if somebody just ran a 440 marathon and they need a 340 to qualify, is that possible? You know, it certainly is, but you know, a lot of different factors go into that. We're going to de- dedicate a, a, an episode this season to talking about, you know, how, how do you qualify for Boston and what does that look like realistically? Um, but today we're going to talk about myths about Boston training and we're going to bust those myths. So I don't know if you want to start out with, with the first one. Sure. And we should also say most of these myths are applicable to all marathon training. This is Boston specific a little bit because this is the official kickoff 
for our Boston runners and for anyone who's training for Boston. And just by way of history, we are a Boston Marathon focused podcast, which is why we are focusing on the Boston Marathon. But of course, this is applicable to any runner starting a marathon or even half marathon training cycle right now. And we see these, these myths a lot. And we, we, as you said, are here to bust them. So the first is more mileage is always better. This is a tough one because mileage is individual. So while consistency is very important in being a successful injury-free runner, consistency is very important over time. Mileage is varied among runners. And for some runners, they really thrive on high mileage. For example, runners who find that when they run a peak week of 60 miles, that's where they really see some gains. On the other hand, there are runners who, when they hit 60 miles, that's where they see injury. And unfortunately it's so individualized that sometimes you don't know until you actually feel an injury coming on. Oh, this, this week was my highest, highest mileage yet. And I'm feeling, I'm not feeling right. I'm feeling worn down. And sometimes because you hear, oh, most of the runners I know are running 60 miles. I'm feeling worn down. Oh, that's normal. I should feel this worn down. This is what I'm supposed to feel like. I'm going to keep increasing my mileage. Instead, keep in mind that every runner is different. And particularly if you are a master's runner and you've hit 60 mile weeks before, and then suddenly you're feeling more worn down than usual, don't try to hit that number 60. Instead, take an assessment and say, well, what's happening here? I'm not feeling well. My runs feel like shit. I'm feeling like my form is definitely compromised toward the end of my runs. Look at your mileage and say, you know what? That may have worked for me five, 10 years ago, but right now this 60 mileage thing does not feel good. And instead, if you want to feel like you're still getting in that cardio work, cross train. Cross training is a great option. So in a nutshell, more mileage is not always better. You need to look at yourself and how you're responding to the mileage. Having recovery weeks is always important to absorb the work. But if you still find when you increase your mileage to what you perceive as a magic number that you're feeling really worn down or even worse, starting to feel like you're getting an injury somewhere, scale it back. You are certainly going to run your race better by getting to the start line injury-free and not worn down. Anything you want to add to that, Lisa? Uh, no, I think you you said it perfectly. I want to segue into one a myth that uh, that I think comes off of that. Well, you said you know what you want to get to the start line healthy and and ready to run a strong race. I think specific to Boston, a myth um, that that a lot of people have is Boston. You know, the hills of Boston got Heartbreak Hill. I've got to train on a ton of hills to do well at Boston. And we see it with a lot of people. And that's the first question we get a lot of times when people come to us to say, "Are you going to put a lot of hills in my in my schedule? I got I got to start working on hills." Um, so I, I think, and you can, you know, kind of chime in with anything, the, the hills after running Boston many, many times and training in the same area here, which I kind of actually avoid the hills uh, on, on my training for flatter routes, that um, that it's not the hill work that's a, it, it, as important as a strength. 
strength for hills. And actually Kelly Redmond does some um, workouts for our Boston runners that are specifically targeted on, on, on hill strength. And we have runners who have Achilles problems who can't do a lot of hill work. And instead they've focused on strength and on some of them with Kelly specifically. And that has been plenty to, to get them through those hills of Boston, um, healthy, strong, running a strong race. When you run a lot of hills in training that don't have a good purpose, other than I just need to run, you know, put a lot of, lo lot of hills in my long run. I have to do a lot of hill repeats. Um, it's putting a lot of extra strain onto your body. So just like we were talking about with the mileage, you're kind of adding another stressor to your body. And it's not necessarily going to make you stronger for the hills. It may make you more mentally prepared. So I think that's where hills come into play is if you can find a route that mimics um, the Boston course, and you can do that a few times during training. If you can find some hills that are the same grade as Heartbreak Hill and the hills at the Newton Hills, and you run them at, you know, at a at marathon pace effort. So noticing that you're slowing, you're going to be slower than your marathon pace on those hills, but you're conserving energy. So you're practicing that. That's specific to Boston. And that's something that you can do. And that's something that's not, I don't think, overly taxing. But to go out and do really hard hill repeats, um, you know, not necessarily helpful. Downhill repeats, that that may be again something that's specific. So you want to learn um, good form on downhills. You want to be learn to be relaxed on downhills. So doing some downhill repeats, learning to um, moderate your speed on downhill so that you're not going out too fast on race day. Those are all um, kind of specific to Boston that you can incorporate throughout the training. But again, more hills is not always better. And what we end up seeing is people who generally aren't training with us, but who are training for Boston who think I've got to go kill all these hills. Um, they're ending up with Achilles problems or ending up with injuries or ending up with fatigue, overtraining, and it's not making them any more prepared for the hills of Boston. Absolutely. And we're not saying that hills are bad by any means. Hills, hill work is a great form of strength training, actually, and strength focused speed work. What we're saying is thinking that every run, every long run needs to be on a hilly route is counterproductive. So it's just kind of goes by the old adage. It's just too much, too much of anything isn't a good thing. So just moderation, like, everything yes, in moderation, moderation. everything <laughs> in moderation. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So to that end, speaking of strength, another myth that we often hear among runners is that your strength training during your marathon cycle shouldn't be too heavy. We actually read this a lot in running articles. And then at the same time, we hear other folks say mm -hmm. your strength training should be heavy. And we're here to say your strength training can be heavy. As long as you're doing runner focused strength training workouts that aren't just random where you go to the gym and you're like, okay, so today I'm going to do three sets of 10 chest press reps, and then I'm going to do some lunges and some squats. And as long as you have a, a tailored plan that is runner specific for your strength work. And of course we, we provide that for our runners through Kelly's workouts. And when we say tailored strength work, it's really important. And we talk about this a lot that strength, your strength training is unilaterally focused because running of course is a one-legged sport. You want to make sure that you're strong on both sides of your body. And to that end, lifting heavy is great. 
And as long as your strength work is not done on days where it's going to take away from your running. So what we often recommend for our runner is that do your hard strength days on a hard run day, do it after your run. And that way you can really keep your hard days hard and your easy days easy. Now, of course, there are folks where they'll say, well, I don't have time to do the strength on my hard day because after I get to the track and I do my speed work or I do my tempo run, I don't have time to do another workout. No problem. We'd rather see a runner do their strength days on a day where it fits in rather than not at all. But when possible, we recommend lifting heavy because that's going to give you the most gains and allow you to really enhance your running through strength work as long as that strength work is purposeful and specific to running. Well said. Um, absolutely. And again, this is kind of all going back to moderation. Um, so, you know, everything in moderation and listening to your body, um, you know, one, one other kind of, uh, myth that we want to hit on or, or topic we want to hit on is, is what you're doing outside of running. And a lot of people have a lot of other things going on. Like maybe they're walking a lot. They have a you know walking routine. They like to keep up or they have a, you know, they're cycling a ton or they're going to a, a fitness class that's high intensity and they want to keep that in, in, into the mix. And you kind of forget that that's added stress on your body, especially during marathon training, and especially during Boston training, you've got to look at outside of that. And so, you know, walking, um, you know, walking a lot and walking, you know, we have runners who say, well, I walk my dog, you know, four or five miles a day, and they don't count that into the time on their feet. And, and it, and it counts. And especially as mileage starts to peak later, Later in the training cycle, you've got to look outside of your running and um, look to see, including strength. So at that point, that might be a point where you dial back the strength a little bit or um, you change the, the focus of the strength. But looking at, at what um, counts towards that overall mileage, even if it's not actually running mileage. Yeah, it's funny. I I think a lot of folks, especially during uh, the pandemic, got really into walking and they and they want to keep that habit. And, and walking is wonderful. It's it's many studies have proved that walking that is, is a meditative activity that allows you to really get some great thinking done, but it does count. So the myth that walking doesn't really count toward mileage, that's false. It does. It's time on your feet. So of course, if you're someone that walks your dog, you know, in spurts, that's fine. But we do have a few runners over the years that were committed on top of their running to getting 10, 15,000 steps on top of the mileage. And they kind of in their mind didn't count it toward their running and were wondering why they were so exhausted that walking does count. So it, it's time to kind of assess what you're doing outside of your running as well. Um, so can we pivot a little bit and talk a little bit about nutrition for a few minutes and some of the myths that um, absolutely related to that? Okay, so one myth that we see a lot in spite of a lot of evidence out there that it doesn't work is the, that you only need to use your fueling occasionally on your long runs because it's better to deplete your glycogen stores and practice running depleted and then fasted, fasted training. Yes. Fast and running. And then on race day, it'll be like a surprise to your body and, and your body will absorb the fuel that much better because your body isn't used to that enhancement. And as a result on race day, you'll feel even more energized because you don't do every run with fuel. Well, and I think too, the theory is that um, if you run fasted, your body learns um, to burn fat for fuel yes. instead of glycogen. Um, but yes, but keep going. <laughs> so whatever yeah. the theory is. 
I, I know we'll get a couple of emails about this because we, we know we have some loyalists out there who really believe in fat adapted running and really believe that you don't need uh, fueling during your long runs to really be successful. And, and, and we understand that there, there are folks who feel like that works for them, but give it a try, give it a try to um, actually fuel and practice fueling during your runs, during the training cycle, because We've talked about this a lot with our registered dietitians. We've had multiple episodes about this, but it's worth repeating. Just like you need to train your body to run a marathon, you need to train your gut to run a marathon. And really the best way to train your gut to run a marathon, of course, is to fuel during your training runs and not just fuel during your long, slow distance training runs, but to also fuel during your fast intervals, during your faster runs, because when we are running faster, i.e. our marathon piece, our body will process that fuel differently than when we're running easier. So to that end, another myth is that you only need to fuel during your long runs and runs that are less than 70, 75 minutes don't require fueling. Well, yes, that is the case. Why not? try fueling during those speed workouts, during those tempo runs that are less than 70 to 75 minutes, because then you really have an opportunity to practice how your body processes your fuel of choice without a lot of consequence. On a long run, if you start feeling kind of sick with a new uh, fueling uh, regimen at mile 10 and you're doing an out and back and you're kind of stuck out there not feeling great, that's a consequence. Whereas if you're on a track or on a looped route where you're practicing your tempo miles and you break out a new fueling option, if God forbid you start to feel sick, nauseous, cramping, or what have you, okay, it didn't work. But the consequence is much less because you're not on a long run where you're out there in the middle of nowhere having to figure out a way to get back. Yeah, very, very good point. And we often tell our runners on some of their marathon pace miles or their tempo miles to, even if the workout is shorter than an hour, to try out their their nutrition. So I think that's um, an, an important point and, and often gets overlooked um, by runners because we do think a lot of times um, I'll just try it out on my long run. I think kind of, um, uh, you know, a misconception or a, a potential trap people fall into is that they don't feel hungry on their long run. So they don't feel like they need fuel because we're running at an easy pace. You probably can, I know I can get away with not fueling on a 16, 18 mile run. And then I get home and I eat and I'm fine. Um, I don't feel like I need it, but as soon as you kick up that pace to a race pace, your body's going to burn glycogen faster and you are going to need it. So, um, again, it's about practicing and training, training your gut. So, um, I think, you know, the more you can incorporate nutrition and that doesn't mean, um, just the nutrition during the run, but also before your run to practice what you're going to have race day morning. Um, I, I think another, so, uh, misconception is that you can kind of keep eating the same way you've been eating throughout your entire training as your mileage gets higher and your intensity gets higher, you need to take another look at your, at your broader nutrition and see, am I fueling properly for this level of, of training? And the dietitians we work with are always telling us that the number one um, issue they see with runners is under fueling, un unintentional. We just don't realize. We think we're eating a lot. We think we're eating plenty, but we don't realize how much we need. And so I think that's another um, sort of, you know, again, a misconception or a myth is that you can um, maintain your your the same nutrition throughout your training cycle, where you may need to um, to tweak things as your mileage gets higher. 
And Lisa, you brought up a good point. You said a minute ago, you said I can get away without fueling on a 16, 18 mile run when I'm going slow and then I eat afterward. But really that's, that's what it is. You can get away with it. But when you fuel during a long run, even on your easier paced long runs, you're recovering that much faster. You're able to take in your fuel, of course, after your run, and then you're feeling better for your next run, whether it's the next day or two days later, you're not feeling as depleted. So while yes, many people can get away without fueling, imagine how much better you could be by switching up and actually being consistent about your fueling during your runs, even when you feel like you don't necessarily have to, because in the past you haven't needed it, try a new stimulus, try fueling consistently throughout your training cycle and see what the difference is in your energy levels, not just during the run, but after the run and then recovering. And one more thing is that as we age, our fueling needs change. So what might have worked for you five, 10 years ago, just due to hormonal changes, maybe that's not working for you anymore. So again, these shorter, faster runs are a great opportunity to practice new fueling options. If what you have been doing doesn't seem to quite be working as well. And then to that end, let's talk about something else that's a myth. And that is that if you have a failed workout, if you have a workout where you just, you just feel like you can't finish it, or you're not at all hitting the paces that you are quote unquote supposed to hit, that is therefore mean that therefore means that you're not succeeding in your training and you won't have a good race. That's a myth. There are so many professional runners out there these days that are very transparent about their training, which we so appreciate. And they're transparent that a lot of the workouts that they have had attempted during their training cycle failed. They had to abort the workout. They had to stop in the middle. This, this didn't work today, or I didn't hit any of my paces today. And I felt like crap. And then, you know what? They ended up having a great race because they didn't let it get to their head and they didn't let it necessarily generalize how they are doing as an athlete, but instead they realize that it was just one workout one day and they have many opportunities to try that workout again or a different workout. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, um, and I think I remember hearing somebody say once we call it training because it's practice. Like that's not your race day. It's your practice. If you could hit every practice perfectly, then you're not practicing the right way. You know, you, we want to challenge ourselves. We want to do things that are harder that we're striving for. So that's why it's called training. That's why it's called practice. And I always remember Tom Foreman, who we've had as a guest on our podcast before, always saying there's no such thing as a bad workout. Um, even those workouts that are more challenging or that you don't hit or that don't feel right, make us appreciate the ones we do that, that do go well even more. So I think that's an important point. And actually, I was just talking to one of our runners today who had a really tough run on Tuesday. And uh, I said, you know, shake it off. It means nothing about your training. I said, I'll bet your next workout goes great. And, you know, this will just be one blip. And sure enough, she just wrote me and said, had a great, you were right. I had a great today. I felt great. Had a great um great workout. So it, it really is, it has, like you said, can't let it um, get into your head. But speaking of, of workouts and paces, let's talk about some myths about pacing. And I think this is a really, really big one because we get a lot of runners who say like, well, I want to run my marathon in X time, whatever it is. I want to run a 350 marathon. So that means I should be running my workouts at X pace. And it doesn't work that way. <laughs> the way we work as coaches and the way we always train where you are currently. So, you know, we can use a recent race result. So if your recent race result was 
the four hour marathon, we're going to have you doing marathon, you know, or, or tempo workouts or paces at that, at that, wherever that kind of extrapolates to. Now, maybe we'll have you do a goal marathon pace run where you are trying to hit your goal marathon pace, but that's a different type of workout. So you don't um, work backwards from your goal to your paces. You work backwards from your current fitness to your paces where you're, you know, aiming to improve over time by doing workouts that improve your lactate threshold, that improve your, uh, you know, your, your efficiency, your economy. Um, so I think that's, you know, we were talking about workouts and paces and not hitting paces, um, choosing the right paces and knowing what the right paces are first um, are, is very important and knowing that that can change due to, 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 to um, conditions. So the weather is super hot or super cold. If it's, if you haven't slept well this week, if you're stressed, I mean, that's a big one that we see. We see a lot of runners who say, I just can't hit the paces. I'm trying to hit marathon pace and it feels so hard I, or whatever it is. And, and then we say, well, what's going on in, you know, in the rest of your life? And they'll say, well, I have this big work project and I'm so stressed. I got in this big fight with my spouse, like whatever it is. We're like, oh, well, that explains a lot of it. So, um, you know, again, going back to what we were talking about of not, um, you know, judging your your fitness or your your um, your your abilities by a poor performance on a workout. It's also having the ability to look at the paces and 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 realize that those are, um, you know, kind of arbitrary, so somewhat arbitrary guidance, and um, they're not um, a determinant of of your success in a, in a workout or in a training cycle or whether or not you'll be able to uh, perform come race day. Well said. And then conversely, there is also a myth that you know, if you have a really successful marathon and then you're entering a new training cycle, well, then that means that my, my easy pace must be faster too. And we're here to say that's not true. So let's say you hit your goal in your last training cycle. And suddenly you were able to finally, uh, get that sub three thirty, and you're now a three twenty nine marathoner. And you train for that in your previous marathon or marathon cycle by running your easy paces, let's say in the 930 to 10 minute mile range. And now you realize that, oh, well, I'm now a 329 marathoner. So therefore my easy pace can be faster. We're here to say that's not the case. That's not necessarily the case. You can certainly run your speed workout intervals faster because when you extrapolate that 329, if you were previously, let's say a 345 marathoner, your race pace projections will be faster and absolutely use those when you're doing a speed work or when you're practicing marathon pace mileage. But when you are running your easy paces, don't get caught in that cycle where you say, well, now I'm going to be in a new pace group, or I'm going to identify myself as a new, easy, how do I say this? Don't identify yourself by your easy pace. Don't get caught in that. Instead, run what feels easy to you. So we've talked about this in the past, particularly in hotter months, but it, it's the same in the winter too. If 10 minute miles felt good to you when you were targeting a 345 marathon, 10 minute miles will still feel good to you if you're targeting now a 329 marathon because of prior race times. Your easy pace will not hold you back from being able to target a new race time. If you are running your tempo miles at that new range and you are doing your speed work at that new range and you are racing and you're finding that you're still able to race faster, 
don't change your easy pace. Why, why not run as easy as possible and recover that much faster and feel that much better than try to challenge yourself to run your easy days harder. It's not necessarily, it will not make you a better runner. It's still your aerobic zone. That's the key. You're still in your aerobic zone, even at your quote unquote slower pace. You're still in like, and you hit the nail on the head when you said, why work harder to get the same benefits, more strain on your body where, you know, that easy pace. And I think I'm a pretty good example of this. My marathon times have stayed the same or gotten even a little faster over the last few years. And I run my long runs slower than I did many years ago. So it's not certainly not affecting my marathon time. Um, I feel like it improves my recovery. Um, it allows me, um, to, to get in more miles than I might otherwise, if I were worn down. So I think that's, that's a really good point. And, and related to that, I'm going to bust another myth, which is that um, speed work is an essential component to marathon training. Not really. I mean, it's a, it's the cherry on top. We like to call it the cherry on top. The essential component to marathon training is mileage and consistency. Um, and again, I'll hold myself out as kind of an example of that. Most of what I do is easy, easy mileage. I do races to get in some speed, but I don't do a lot of structured speed work. I don't do a lot of structured tempo work. It's just, I'm just not motivated to do it. I don't have a group to do it with many different reasons, but it's not an essential component. So if you're somebody who, for whatever reason, maybe you're coming back from injury, maybe you don't have access to a track, you don't, for whatever reason, you know, you go out to do speed work one day and it's just not happening. It's not essential. Get in the easy mileage, get in that mileage. We have can tell you from experience watching you know, hundreds and hundreds of marathoners over the years, coaching hundreds and hundreds of marathoners. The ones that have the most success are the ones that are consistent and can get in mileage. And to do that, you need to stay healthy. You need to keep your easy runs easy. Um, again, the speed work is sort of the, the cherry on top. It, it certainly can help with efficiency. It can help with lactate threshold. It's certainly, there is definitely a value to speed work, um, but it, it is not um, the, the end all be all of, of training. Absolutely. So if you're someone returning from injury or you haven't trained for a marathon, maybe in a couple of years and your, your mileage hasn't reflected marathon training, try to really avoid doing too much speed work and instead focus on building mileage. And then once you have that base, consistently over a few training cycles, then add the speed work back in. And so we're here to bust the myth that you need speed work so that if you do fall in that category, you can be comfortable knowing that just building the mileage and having consistency over time is going to get you there injury-free. And while certainly speed work is a stimulus that does work, it's not essential. And if you are teetering on a possible injury or you haven't had a, a solid mileage base in a while, don't focus too much on speed work. It's not worth it. And it can sometimes just teeter you over that edge and into injury. Um, another myth that we want to bust is that you must have a long run every weekend to train successfully for a marathon. And we're here to tell you that you do not have to run long every weekend to get to the start line healthy and prepared for the Boston Marathon. And here's why your body doesn't know exactly when your seven days are up for you to run your long run. And so there may be some weeks where you've done, let's say a speed workout and a tempo workout, and you're feeling really worn down by the time you hit Saturday or Sunday for your long run. 
instead of running your long run, exactly what you think you should, because that's what you've done in the past, shorten your run or even, even worse, don't do your long run, skip it for the week and then run long the next week. In fact, a lot of masters runners actually do a 10 to 14 day cycle instead of a seven day cycle. And this works for them. We know that's unnerving for a lot of folks. And we also recognize that the long run is social for so many people. And it's not really about the physical gains from a long run as much as it's the mental gains, not just being able to, to check off the mileage, but also having the opportunity to run with other people on the weekend. And that is so important for, for mental health. And we certainly don't want to take that away from people, but if you find that the long runs are really wearing you down for this training cycle, try skipping a few, maybe just do a long run three weeks out of the month instead of four, or maybe every other week, make your long run about half of what the long run should be and see how that works for you, especially our master's runners. You have a lot of cumulative mileage under your belt and each training cycle provides you with mileage. Your body doesn't forget about it. You build upon those training cycles. So it's not like you, you will lose fitness by not having as many long runs. And in fact, what you may find is that you're getting to the start line even fresher. Yeah. I think it's hard for runners. We think so often it's so ingrained in our heads. Weekend long run, weekend long run, weekend long, the seven day cycle of just, that's how you do it. You do a weekend long run, you do a speed work, you do a tempo work. Like it's kind of the, the, the blueprint. And we've found for a lot of runners, we have to think outside of that blueprint and figure out, okay, this is a master's runner who just needs more recovery time. This is somebody who's traveling a lot. They just can't fit in that long run. That's okay. And we've had plenty of runners have successful PRs, strong race times, successful marathons on not a traditional every weekend long run. And actually we're working with several runners right now that have a very, you know, the long runs are spread out by a couple of weeks, by 10 days, and they're doing great and they're healthy and they feeling good on their runs and they're feeling recovered. Um, so I think it's hard to get out of that, um, mentality that we have, that we all just think of like, you know, Saturday long run or Sunday long run. And it just that way. And, um, and that build up through the cycle, that's kind of the traditional way to do it. But uh, again, there, there are times that you have to think outside the blueprint or if, if, uh, if, if you can't get in your long run, it doesn't mean like your training is, is ruined. It means, okay, okay, we'll, you know, re recalibrate and next week we'll get in the long run. Or maybe if you have time on Wednesday this week, instead of this weekend, we'll do it this Wednesday. And then a week and a half from now, um, get in the next long run. And, and related to that, a huge myth is that you have to get to 20 miles. Where is that? Where does that come from? And in other, in European countries, it's by kilometers. It's like round kilometers, like 30 kilometers or 35 kilometers. It's just round numbers. People like round numbers. So we say, okay, got to get to a 20 mile long run. Some people think got to get to a 22 mile long run. There is nothing magical about those numbers. It is more about the time on your feet. So if you're somebody who's a little bit slower in your easy long runs and 18 miles takes you three hours, that is plenty at over about an hour and a half to two hours, the aerobic benefits start to decline and the risk of injury um, goes up. So it's balancing that. So, you know, we have a lot of runners who we just say 18 miles or three hours, whichever comes first, because over three hours, it's just really not, even if you're a four or five hour marathon or getting out to do a long run over three, three and a half hours is just more strain on your body than benefit. So I think that's a big myth is that 
you know, you've got to hit a 20 mile long run or several 20, certain number of 20 mile long runs. There is nothing magical. If you hit, if you run 18 miles, if you run, you know, 19.3, if you run 17 and a half and you're out there for three hours, that is plenty of time. There is no, I think people get that, you know, allow that to get them psyched out. It's like, oh, I, I didn't get in a 20 mile run, but you got in several, like, you know, two and a half, three hour runs. And like you talked about before, the cumulative weekly mileage, your cumulative weekly mileage was was high. That is that is fine. That is that that's you know. So I think that's a big myth um, and and misconception that a lot of people will allow to get tripped up on because they get psyched out that they didn't do twenty mile long runs. Well said. And our last myth is about something that is is controversial, and this is just our opinion based on our experience and what we've seen, and that is you need super shoes to be able to run a fast marathon. And we're here to tell you, you do not need super shoes to run a fast, successful marathon. It's hard when you tow the start line of most races these days, you notice that everyone is wearing super shoes. So there's a little bit of pressure to try them out. And we certainly understand that, but super shoes aren't for everyone. And in fact, in some instances, super shoes can actually cause injuries. We um, just recently posted an article on our Facebook page. It was in the Wall Street Journal today about the debate over super shoes. And while some runners love their super shoes and they find that it takes four or five minutes off their marathon times, and these these aren't just elite runners, but the everyday runner, there are plenty of runners out there that try super shoes and realize very quickly into their marathon that while the first 10 miles felt really great, the second 16 miles felt really painful on their Achilles and calves. And unfortunately with super shoes, it's hard to, to wear them for a training cycle because of course they have limited mileage. So generally when, when one goes out to run a marathon in super shoes, they've tested them, but not nearly enough to really see how they work in a marathon. So I guess just, um, recognize that not all super shoes are beneficial understand that it's not a given that you will run faster in super shoes and also understand that while a, a pair of super shoes may allow you to run a slightly faster marathon, the time gains from that super shoe may have ramifications for future training cycles. We know runners who were able to take off two, three minutes off their marathon times by wearing super shoes, but then as a result, they finished the marathon, had some Achilles pain, and then we're out with an injury as a result of wearing the super shoes for the next training cycle. So really weigh the pros and cons and recognize that it's not a foolproof way to take off time in a marathon. And just because everyone else is wearing a super shoe doesn't mean that it's right for you. And it's okay to, to tow the start line, not in a super shoe. You'll still run fast because most importantly, you'll be well-trained, well-rested, well-fueled and ready to tackle the Boston marathon. Well said, I, I would just add that if, you know, if you're thinking about if you're not trying doing using super shoes yet, or you're thinking about changing up your shoes to go to a specialty running store, um, I'll, obviously we'll put in a plug for R and J Sports here in our area um, that really know what they're doing and talk to them about you know what what super shoe might be right for you for your distances you're running because different shoes are 
right for different distances. Some are not great for merit, aren't going to hold up, you know, in terms if you need stability and you've got a shoe that, you know, by once you start to fatigue at mile 16, your form deteriorates and the shoe's not supporting you. Um, so go, go to your, go to your local um, running store, get fit, talk to them about what you're, what you're looking for, and then try them out. Like try them out on short runs to start with. And then eventually build to, you know, at least one long run, try them out. Because like you said, shoe could feel great for five or six miles. And then at mile 16 or 17, when you start to slow down or lose your form, uh, they don't feel so great anymore. So make sure that you, you try them out, but um, don't get caught up in the hype and uh, intimidated when you get to the start line and you look down and everyone has the super shoes on and you have your regular trainers on, it, you know, it's, uh, it's definitely not, um, it, it's hard to, uh, to block that out and just trust your training but I agree with everything you said about super shoes. Yeah. So that sums up our myths that we just busted for your Boston marathon training cycle. And, um, we're really excited to kick it off with all of our runners, which you mentioned we did last night with our first meeting. And uh, we'll be doing a series of talks with our runners throughout the training season. We do still have spaces in our group virtual Boston training program. It's called RFF to BOS. And information about that is um, linked to our social media. And of course, you can just reach out to us at Julie and Lisa at runfartherandfaster.com. We also have information about it on our website. And it's a group training program where we provide a very tailored schedule with strength workouts, the videos, you just click on the link and do the videos. You don't even have to think about your strength training because it's all there for you. And in addition to that, we have um, monthly speakers and guests as we did last night and general guidance for running a successful Boston marathon. We also provide specific private virtual coaching, uh, which many of our runners have opted to do instead to prepare for Boston. But this is our group training program, which is virtual and can be done from anywhere in the country. So even though the world, world. anywhere in the world, that's right. We do have some runners outside the United States, of course, but even though I'm not running Boston this year, obviously, because I tore my ACL, I'm still super excited about the season. I, I really mean this from the bottom of my heart. I'm so happy that I'm still going to be able to go and support our runners and cheer everyone on. And my goal is to be able to run around the Boston course and cheer everyone on uh, without any difficulty by April. That is my goal. And I'm really excited to be able to share the journey with you, Lisa, and with all of our runners and to continue podcasting and providing guidance. And um, if anyone has any questions for us, please feel free to reach out. And we're excited to bring content specific to the Boston Marathon all season long. So Lisa, I hope you have a great week. I hope you have a great week, Julie. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Run Farther and Faster Boston Marathon podcast. We want to give a special thanks to our editor, Aaron Bryan. And if you enjoyed this episode and enjoy listening to our podcast, please share it with others and please leave a review if you haven't done so already on iTunes. Thanks for listening and have a great week.